You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Tonight, uh, in Hebrews again, Hebrews chapter 10, the last section of that chapter, verses 26 to 39, we had found that... Uh, Early in the chapter, there was the uh, unsurpassed uh, value and efficacy of the sacrifice of Christ, uh, the willing sacrifice of himself, though he was God in the flesh, God with us, Emmanuel. He took on the role of being the sin bearer, being the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world. And chapter 10 and verse 14 had told us that by one offering he perfected for all times, those who are being sanctified. So all the sanctified of, of all ages uh, will be done so by the cleansing blood of Christ. And now we're going to have additional exhortations uh, based on this fact. We have up our graphical outline, as we've had before. We've noted the arguments that have been made in Hebrews uh, comparing Christ and the angels, his place with humanity, his greater service than Moses and the priest, uh, the greater covenant and better promises by the better sacrifice, bringing along a better ministry to us. Along the way, we've had exhortations, warnings about neglect and unbelief, about immaturity and even falling away, and we'll have an echo of that again tonight. Also, exhortations to have confidence in God's Word. And the section we just read last week about uh, having confidence to enter uh, the holy place, the blood of Christ, by a new and living way. So we had the exhortation to fidelity and to faith, hope, and love. Tonight, uh, chapter 10, verse 26, we have two options laid before us, a terrifying expectation or a faithful life. So let's read the scripture. Hebrews 10, 26, beginning. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire, which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean? the blood of the covenant by which we're sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said this, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days when you, after having been enlightened, uh, you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulation, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and joyfully accepted the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward." For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, 
you may receive what's promised. For yet a little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So we note uh, with this stark warning about the terrifying expectation that the choices are clearly set before us, that these folks have gone a long way and they need to continue to the end of that journey. Uh, we have in this verse of Amazing Grace, these familiar words, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Well, there on the grace has brought me this far. Now, stick with the faith and have the grace bring you home. And so he does tell them uh, that at times it is hard to go on. But, you know, it had been hard in the past, and they did that faithfully. And so, yes, uh, the writer understands and admits and encourages them in a time when it is hard to go on, but to turn back is to literally turn to hell. That's just about as stark as the writer puts it. So we start with the terrifying expectation for if we go on sinning willfully. Uh, I think it's probably decent uh, time to note that uh, the verses right above that had talked about not forsaking our assembling together as is the habit of some. Certainly the continual forsaking, the, the abandonment of, of the worship, of the glory of God, of the instruction and exhortation you receive in Scripture and the fellowship with brethren. That would be a willful sin. It's not the only one. The deliberate or willful sin, I think probably most under consideration here, is just not being faithful, of not serving Jesus, of not being a, his disciple, but going back to the way you've come. And they do that, it says, after having received a knowledge of the truth. A knowledge there tells us that they knew about it. It wasn't something they had just sampled. It wasn't something that they had just uh, a passing acquaintance with. Uh, it's the uh, knowledge of experience, of having uh, done a thing, as we had back in chapter 6, the grave warning about um, apostasy there. It also talked about those who had been enlightened. So here it talks about those who received knowledge. There it was those who'd been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come, then fall away. Well, here it's people with knowledge. And though they have knowledge, they've now gone to a willful sin, the willful sin of unfaithfulness, of not following their Savior. And so if you're not following the Savior, what remains for you to be in salvation in regard to saving, if you're not following the Savior, he says there remains no more a sacrifice for sin. Well, Jesus is the sacrifice for sin. Fidelity to him is the key to eternal salvation, the key to reconciliation, the key to adoption, the key to our relationship with God. Here they are turning back from him who is the sacrifice. And this language of there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, I think is a deep echo of the Old Testament. In Numbers 15, there was this, 
about a person who did something defiantly, whether he was a native or an alien, Numbers 1530, the one who blasphemes the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from the people because he's despised the word of the Lord. He's broken the commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. Here's the New Testament equivalent. Here's the gospel equivalent of the person who defiantly goes on into sin. And so this one has no more sacrifice if they go on willfully sinning. We think about what Peter talked about with those who go back into the corruptions of the world. He compared it to the dog returning to its vomit. He compared it to the sow uh, returning to uh, the mire. Uh, they are overcome again by the world. Their last state is worse than the first. That's the kind of situation that could face these if they go on sinning willfully. And as they do that, what do they expect in this life? Well, what they can expect, verse 27, is to live in a fearful expectation. They can live now in terror every time it comes to their minds of what eternity will bring. So we who have faith and we who can humbly confess our sins to God, say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, or like the words of the Psalms in Psalm 25, Lord, forgive my iniquity for it is great. For those of us who can do that, why then we, when we face these terrors of the conscience, when they come to us as we lay our heads down at night or uh, they strike us as we're going about our day and something causes us to think of what the future holds, we can face it with confidence because we have grace on our side. Those who have rejected Christ, those who have fallen away, those who go on sinning willfully, they can have only in this life a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. It's, it's bad enough to live knowing that's coming, much less the reality of it come. That one would go into that fury of fire, as verse 27 continues, which will consume the adversaries. That's a, a quote and a reference to Isaiah 26 and verse 11. Isaiah 26.10 says, Though the wicked is shown favor, he doesn't learn righteousness. And verse 11, O Lord, lift your hand is lifted up, yet they don't see it. They see your zeal for your people and are put to shame. Indeed, fire will devour them. But for the faithful, verse 12, Lord, you establish peace for us. And so the Lord uplifts his faithful. His hand is with them. He establishes for them peace. But for the wicked, there is a fire. Isaiah is also the one who tells us multiple times there is no peace for the wicked. There's no peace here, and that's just a, a foreshadow of the lack of peace that's coming. So there's a, even in this life, unfaithfulness has this terrible fruit of conscience. And Paul says, or the Hebrew writer, I think it's Paul. <laughs> Hebrew writer says, we go on verse 18, anyone who set aside the law of Moses died without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And that's Deuteronomy 17. Behold, if a thing is true and certain that a detestable thing has been done in Israel, you shall bring the man and the woman who did the evil deeds. You shall stone them to death on the evidence of two or three witnesses. He is to die and be put to death. He shall not be put to death on one witness, but on the evidence of two. Thus you'll purge the evil from your midst. Here we have in a very short form, but as 
we've seen so often in Hebrews, comparison of the old system and the new. In the old system, you got two witnesses, clear evidence of crime, for that which would be capital punishment. Well, there you go. And so if you set aside the law of Moses, this is what you got. If you set aside Christ and the grace of Christ, verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think they would deserve? So it's been better, better, better. The old is, you know, surpassed by the new over and over in the book of Hebrews. Well, here again, uh, the uh, old is surpassed by the new, the, the greater offer of salvation, but also for those who know the salvation and then turn from it, the greater consequence. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve? Who, and now we have three descriptions, trampled underfoot the Son of God, regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace. And so here we see that when you walk away from Christ, it's not just that you uh, leave that unattended, that you leave that as though you were never there and it has no mark or imprint upon you or you upon it, but instead you are trampling underfoot the Son of God. Over and over we've seen the lofty position of the Son of God in the book of Hebrews. He's the express image of God's person in chapter 1. He's greater, uh, He has a greater name than all the angels. He has a greater ministry than anyone you can name or think of. He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And oh, by the way, now here you are trampling underfoot. Here you are with the word of God that was for you salvation, the knowledge of Jesus through that, and now... You just regard that as, as nothing. Back in chapter 6 in this type of warning, it was about those who crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So here it is trampled underfoot. There it was crucified again. It is the most uh, visceral and disgusting of images and of figures of how you're treating the most holy and profane and loving and sacrificial one that there has ever been, and you are just, as it were, trampling him under your feet. In the early part of Jesus' teaching, what did he say? What did you do with salt that lost its savor? You cast it out and trample under feet. How are they treating Christ? As though he's lost his savor to them. He means nothing to them. He is something they have now rejected. And sometimes we see this among those who become uh, uh, reprobate and who uh, publicly uh, uh, refuse uh, the Son of God. They'll say the most vile and disgusting things about him. And so uh, they are trampling underfoot. As it goes on, and you regard as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Well, we just had a whole chapter on the holy blood of Christ, the saving blood the holiest of all bloods, the blood that was presented in heaven. And for you, what's that to me? You treat that as unclean, the cleaning agent of life. You treat that as unclean. You know, what did Peter say? We're not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but by precious blood, the uh, lamb, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so we have either precious blood or unclean blood. How do you take the blood of Christ? 
Do you yourself take it to you and your conscience and to your life as clean and pure and precious and saving? Or do you take it as of no account, as of unclean, as of, oh, get that, get that blood off me, right? What happens if we get a little blood on us? Uh, get that off, right? What happens if we should especially get somebody else's blood on us? Ooh, and time for, you know, uh, infectious disease protocols and all kinds of bleaching. And, well, here are people who are in that way spiritually acting of the blood of Christ. And what an insult. They've insulted the spirit of grace. The gracious offer of our gracious Lord and the one who brings us that grace makes it alive in our hearts. And here you are insulting. So we have this terrible situation. Well, what should happen? We know him who says, again, quoting Isaiah, Isaiah 32, 5. It's also in Romans 12, 9, quoted there the same. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. We could go read it, but it reads the same Old and New Testament both. And another quote, the Lord will judge his people. That's in Deuteronomy 21 and 20, verse 26, also in Psalm 135. And so here are these clear principles of what God will do to those who reject and him and go on sinning willfully. So, yeah, verse 31, it's a fearful, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's terrifying, just an expectation. Here is the reality come true for those who were apostate, those who turned to unrighteousness, those who turned away after knowing their Savior. Now, that's terrible. That's, that's one of the worst lessons a preacher has to preach. It's in the book. we got to preach it. But we, we note, just as in chapter 6, just right after that, there was already some mitigation. There was already some comfort being offered. But back in chapter 6, but we're convinced of better things concerning you, brethren, concerning the things of salvation. Here is now the mitigation, uh, and now the encouragement after having given the fullest and darkest of warnings. But, so, no, no, it doesn't have to be that way. That is a path that some of you may see the end of, but that's not the path you have to be on. That's not the path we think most of y'all are on, going back to the things of chapter 6. It says here, but recall the former days. So think back. Think back to your life and history with God. Again, just like in chapter 6, God is not so unjust as to forget your work and your love. Well, here it's going to talk about the love and work. God is not going to forget that. We've already been told in chapter 6. Well, you shouldn't forget it either. And that's the thing, is sometimes uh, people give up on themselves and give up on these things when God is not. God knows you did these things. What did you do in the former days? When after being enlightened, again, there's that same word is from back in chapter 6, verse 4, and equivalent to the knowledge in the passages we started reading tonight above. After having been enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering. The King James says a great flight of affliction. The, the flight there may be recalling the fact that so many of them were scattered from Jerusalem in the persecutions beginning in Acts 8. And then there were persecutions through Acts 12. The church was scattered. Even an apostle 
uh, was put to death and beheaded and, and Peter was imprisoned and all those things uh, were taking place and they were right there uh, participating, sometimes being publicly exposed, it says, being exposed to reproach and aff aff uh, affliction. And so they were made a public ridicule of. Uh, there were people who uh, were made to suffer as Christians for Christ in front of their neighbors. Uh, the way that Jesus was publicly scorned and put on display, so were some of the brethren. And they also shared with those who were so treated. So not everybody had that uh, worst income to them. But as certainly they would have recognized there, but for the grace of God go I, that the persecution that fell on the person I sit, you know, one pew away from, that could have been mine. Uh, here we are in the same uh, fellowship. These are our brethren, and they shared with them as they were mistreated. They fully had lived uh, the admonition of the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 to weep with those who weep and also rejoice with those who rejoice. So they shared with them. They had compassion for those in prison. And so we think about Paul uh, before he was Paul, when he was Saul, uh, dragging so many off to prison. There we find that uh, when these folks were dragged off, uh, they were helpers to them. They uh, would uh, take care of their families or they would make sure that these people uh, would have been properly fed and, uh, and uh, clothed while in prison. It was the duty of the family back then, uh, the, not like uh, today where in uh, institutions, you know, no clothing or food gets in, everything's under, under search there. They throw people in these dungeons and prisons. And oftentimes if uh, your family or your friends didn't come feed you, you didn't eat. So remembering the prisoners was especially necessary, especially for the prisoners. So they accepted joyfully, it says, the seizure of their property. We don't have a uh, record directly of, of that kind of event taking place, but you think about where so many Christians flee, and, uh, well, who's going to live in that house? Well, some of the persecutors will put their friends and their families in those houses, right? That it, One of the things that happens in all kinds of religious and ethnic persecutions is often there's a profit motive involved. There's a greed motive involved. Uh, there are people who persecute others, drive them away, and then take the stuff they left behind. And so it appears that that happened here as well. They accepted that joyfully. I don't know I'd be real happy about that, but, but they accepted it in the same spirit of which the apostles did accept in Acts 5. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been worthy to suffer shame for his name. So they're happy for the ability to uh, do something in the name of Christ and in some way copy and model uh, the the sufferings of Jesus and such uh, attitudes in doing this uh, would have been very important, very uplifting uh, to the others who are facing such a thing. And so here are these people, they, it says they were looking for a better possession and an abiding one. Now that's a key, key turn of phrase, a better and an abiding possession. Uh, we're going to find that uh, in the next chapter as a main theme. Moses looking for something better than the riches and treasures of Egypt. Abraham looking for a, a permanent uh, city. Uh, in the exhortations we have on faith, this will come up. These people had lived a life where you could have put that part of their life in Hebrews 11. 
but now some of them were getting weary in it. Some of them were getting worn down. So they are told, verse 35, don't, therefore don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. There is so much reward in finishing the course. There is so much reward in those last steps toward victory. You can be confident in this. And the Hebrew writer is, is acknowledging they're having trouble doing that right now. But that doesn't mean God's ready to throw them out. God is still wanting them to be there and to finish. And he sent them this encouragement so that they might. What they need, this last part now, is the faithful enduring. So we've had the terrifying expectation. We've recalled the hard times. But what a reward was in them. And now, the last of tonight's exhortation, the faithful living. You have need of endurance. When we get to chapter 11, we're going to see people after person after person who endured. Blessed are those who endured. Well, we see here, you, that's where you stand now. You need to finish up. You need to do that. Uh, you know, you'll reap if you don't grow weary. You guys are getting a bit weary. You need to stick with it uh, to the end. As James said, be patient, therefore, brethren, till the coming of the Lord. You know, these people need some of that patience. They need that endurance. So when you've done the will of God, see, they had been doing the will of God. There was no question of that. But they, they need to do the will of God, which is the fullness of a faithful life. Uh, like it was said of King David, uh, Paul said in Acts 13, he faithfully served God in his own generation. Well, their generation is nearing a conclusion, but they need to be firm to the end. They need to wait in patience, in faith, until they receive what's promised. The, the promises to those who overcome, the promises to those who are victorious, they need to hold on for a bit longer. And then there's a quote from Habakkuk, one of the most famous quotes of the Old Testament. Uh, we have it in Romans 1, and we have it in Galatians 3, and we have it here. For yet a little while, the one coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So the quote, the righteous shall live by faith. In Romans and Galatians, we just have that short part, the righteous shall live by faith. Here in this quote, we have a bit more of the context of it. Uh, we see that in a little while, the one is coming will not delay. Now, originally, the one that wasn't delaying very long, he wouldn't be there immediately, but he wouldn't be there uh, all too long in the future, uh, was going to be uh, Nebuchadnezzar coming and uh, and destroying, uh, the, well, it would be the armies of, uh, the armies that come and, and put is, uh, judgment on Israel. Ju armies would come and get put judgment on Israel, but the faithful person would still live by faith, even knowing these armies of destruction are coming. And I think that's why we have the longer quote here, because what is coming, we know for certain, what is coming to Jerusalem in just a couple of years? The Roman legions. And all that Jewish-based persecution that these people, I think, have been facing 
that's going to go away because that Jewish society is going to go away. They need to hold on for just a little bit longer. I think that's why the quote is a little longer here. And it starts with the uh, quote, yet a little longer, yet a little longer. And so it would be just like in the days of Habakkuk, waiting for a foreign army to come and waiting for the judgment of the Lord to come on the unfaithful. But of the faithful, they would live. How would they live? They would live by faith. But the one who, not trusting in God to provide, uh, seeing all this uh, damage and seeing all these hardships coming, decides, you know what, I'm, I just can't do it. I'm done. The one who shrinks back, my righteous shall live by faith, but if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We want to please God. That should be our ambition, right, Paul, uh, to uh, the Philippians. I make that my ambition, whether home or absent, uh, right, uh, uh, is to please God, to be with the Lord. The one who shrinks back, there's no pleasure in him. Well, how are we saved? We're saved by God's good pleasure. We're saved by his grace and kindness and mercy extended. What if he no longer has pleasure in us? What if he finds only uh, fault in us? What if there's some you know, stench about us? To get, no, not that one. I'm done with that one. Don't do that. Stay in faith. Don't shrink back. Don't turn from Christ. Don't put him to the open shame. Verse 39 as we close. But we, again, notice every time we get these really hard and stark admonitions, we always have the mitigating but, but, but God won't forget, but God remembers, but let's remember how faithful you'd been and how you could be, but we're not those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. How we save folks is by faith, right? How do we pres- how do we get here? We got here by faith, right? I understand humility, repentance, baptism, confession, all that played a part. But we got here, if we just have a one-word summer, we got here by faith. How is it that we'll still be pleasing to God? Well, it's by faith. What will preserve our souls? Faith. We are those who have faith to the preserving of our souls. So let's, in every circumstance, no matter how uh, long it's been, how difficult it's been of late, how difficult it looks like it might be shortly in the future. We're just going to be faithful. We're going to set our hope on him. We're going to have faith and we're going to preserve our souls. The soul that he came to save. He wants to save. He wants to save our souls. He wants us to be with him. How, how can we do that? By faith. That's how we got here. That's how we stay here. And that's how we're preserved. So we're preserved through faith. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Malvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at malvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.